Welcome to The Politics Guys, the show where we look for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate. And this is our Wednesday edition. And so I'm going to point this out twice today, but I'm going to start at the beginning of the show to let listeners know uh, that if you were tuning in to listen to Mike's newest interview, that we have actually spun that off into its own podcast called Politics Plus. And if you follow us on social media, you might have even noticed that we had asked for a lot of input on the Politics Plus logo and the other things about it. And you've had a lot of really important feedback in shaping that show. And Politics Plus is now available. And you can find that on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts uh, by searching for Politics Plus. The first interview that Mike is doing is actually with the Atlantic columnist and former George W. speechwriter, uh, David Fromm, author of Trumpocracy. And at the end of the show, I'll remind you again about the really cool things that are happening on Politics Plus. But for this Wednesday uh, uh, episode of The Politics Guys, I am joined by Ken Katkin, and we're going to actually be discussing your questions about politics. So Ken, uh, Ken, it's wonderful to be talking to you again. Oh, yeah, it's great to talk to you again, Trey. So, Ken, we've actually had some really fascinating questions. And so I just want to tell listeners, we had more questions than we're going to have time to take on. Um, And and most of them were just really amazing questions. Uh, And so I'm trying to get the ones that I think that we can kind of get in, maybe the most interesting and kind of timely. So if I don't get to yours, uh, my apologies. Maybe we'll be able to do that in the future. Um, But I'm trying to hit the big ones. So, Ken... Uh, I'm going to start with our first listener question, and this comes from a listener named Jay. No, not Jay, the co-host, uh, <laughs> another Jay. Uh, this Jay, he is interested in the Electoral College, and he's got a couple parts to his question. So one, he wants to know, why do we have it? And then he also wants to know, why can't our Constitution, why doesn't it or why couldn't it have a mechanism that could invalidate elections in case of some kind of fraud or craziness? Specifically, Jay wants to know, like, look, 2016 was obviously a bunch of fraud. Why can't we just throw Donald Trump out? And he points to other countries like Kenya that uh, potentially have these similar kind of invalidation laws. Um, so, uh, Ken, you know, you're the lawyer on some of this, but I mean, I can tell you at least from the, the framers view, this is kind of my area. So Jay, why do we have an electoral college? Well, the, the answer to that part of your question, I'll, I'll take on, then I'll kind of let Ken uh, go from there is we have an electoral college because we did not want to have a direct democracy. So when you take a look at our constitution, uh, it was designed specifically to be kind of a Republican system, meaning that there were not actually many originally intended directly elected offices. So for example, the Senate was not uh, a directly elected uh, position. It came from state legislatures. And in a similar way, the idea was is that presidents were not, shouldn't be directly elected, that there needed to be this indirect body that was going to give rise to them. As a matter of fact, at the Constitutional Convention, there were a couple of different mechanisms, maybe, for instance, having the Senate and the House uh, vote for the president as being another way of having this indirect election for the the chief executive office. And so the electoral college was a was a mechanism to have this buffer. And so that's why in some ways your question was kind of interesting to me because you say, well, uh, why couldn't you have a mechanism to invalidate elections? Well, in some ways that is kind of what the electoral college was. It was this 
kind of buffer, this way to have uh, maybe a better thinking set of individuals to say, wait a second, let's slow down, let's think about this differently. Uh, now, as for kind of your follow-on questions, maybe Jay, you have something to add to that, or maybe you want to take on more about, you know, why can't we have something more to invalidate when le- elections get crazy in Jay's term? Um, yeah, so I would add, I, I think the Electoral College, um, I, I certainly agree uh, with you, Trey, that uh, the part of it was a, a it was an intermediating um, uh, kind of a um, structure so that you'd have voters not directly um, electing f- federal officers, including the, the president, the judges, and the, and the senators. So you only had direct elections for the House of Representatives. Um, so th- that was because of the distrust of uh, popular democracy. Um, but I think there were also some other reasons as well. Um, so that, that wasn't the only reason for the Electoral College. Um, it was an important part of the three-fifths compromise, right? So it would be hard to think about how do you um, prevent slaves from voting, but still count um, their numbers in some way um, to give extra weight to the votes of slave owners or people or white people who lived in slave states, give them extra weight to reflect the population uh, of slaves. Um, If you just had direct voting, it would be sort of hard to do that uh, because the slaves wouldn't be voting, so they wouldn't be counted. Um, But the Electoral College was a way of um, counting the slave population and giving extra weight to the slave states. And that, that I think, was one of the reasons we have it. Um, another reason I think we have it, and this is more of an elaboration or an extension of what Trey said, um, is that the framers did not even um, presume that on election day, the voters would cast a vote for, in which a, a presidential candidate would be named. Um, they thought it was um, just as likely that you would just simply vote for the electors that would go to the electoral college. Um, or that the state legislator wouldn't even would not even have a, a general election for for president, and that the state legislatures would just vote for the electors that would go to the electoral college. So that um, the idea of um, uh, intermediating was also the idea of active deliberation. That the the electors who went to the electoral college would be sent there because they were people who would be wise people who could then deliberate about who should be president. So they wouldn't go there with um, marching orders about who they're supposed to vote for, um, to, for president. So, so all of those uh, kinds of things were reasons. Um, I think there've been other more modern reasons uh, offered that may not have been the framers reasons, but may be relevant uh, today. Um, one is that um, if you just had something like a national popular vote uh, and it was close, uh, then you'd have to have a national recount um, which would be uh, a huge mess. Whereas having an electoral college, we typically, you know, sometimes the elections are close and we have to have recounts in particular states, um, but but uh, it, it's not as difficult to do as having a national recount. So some people have said that's a good reason. Uh, another people have said that the reason um, of, of having the um, uh, separate states vote is that it sort of limits the, um, the, it basically limits the areas where the candidates have to campaign uh, to those places that could be uh, close in the election. And so it's sort of an organized way to structure the campaigning and that the, the in, you know, with the amount of time that's available, um, it would just be impossible for candidates to campaign everywhere. So it's good to have some structure to that. So those kinds of reasons have been yeah. offered as well. Wouldn't you, I mean, I think another modern one is probably the idea of geographic diversity. You know, the issue of 
for many the idea that you'd have a few cities becoming the major campaign spots is often considered a negative, uh, potentially. Again, I don't think that's anything that any framer was considering. Yeah. Uh, but I think is a, is a modern reason that you want to have kind of geographic diversity so even smaller areas still get to cast probably a larger amount of weight, which is actually probably a legacy of what you were considering with slavery. But, you know, obviously, anyway. Yeah, although it's really, it's not a question of which areas are large or small. It's just a question of which states are close. So mm-hmm. here, here in Ohio, um, we get a lot of attention during uh, presidential years, but that includes the relatively large cities of Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus, um, as well as the rural areas. Um, whereas there's, you know, there's states that are, um, you know, more rural or states that are more urban. Um, but it's just whether it's just really a question of it's the states where the 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 elections could be contested that are going to get the most attention. Yeah. Now, and then Jay, the other part of your question here uh, that, you know, it might be a little easier to answer, but I'm not sure how much you'll like, or at least my response, I'm not sure, is that you say, well, why can't we have a mechanism to invalidate uh, elections? And the answer is, is, so one is you have this kind of assumption of fraud. Now, as you well know, as a listener of the show, I'm I'm not a Trump supporter. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that I don't think that, for example, as I argued with uh, Jay uh, a couple of months ago, uh, that foreign actors don't often or necessarily attempt to inter- uh, um, intervene in our political elections. But there's a difference between that and saying that you have fraud that kind of raises to the level where one must consider the legitimacy of the elections as a whole. And so if your question is, why can't we just throw out the 2016 election? The answer becomes, well, if you're going to have mechanisms that can throw out elections, you have to figure out, well, do we vote for the mechanisms in which we decide what those are going to throw out which elections? And if fraud can take place in one of those, what about in this additional mechanism? So one of the problems with having these kind of supra constitutional organizations around the world that can potentially invalidate elections in this way is that they can have the same problems, sometimes more concentratedly, than even the general election itself. So in the case of why doesn't, I don't think that our framers thought that it was necessary, once you've already had all of these buffers, to have yet another buffer take place, because that they that's what you have courts and other things for. So, so Ken, what do you think about that kind of second part of his question in about a minute or so? Yeah. So first, I agree with you, um, uh, Trey, that there was. I, I I think that the I think the election was in fact tipped by James Comey and to some extent by uh, Russian interference. But that the way it was tipped was that they persuaded people to vote um, a certain way. I, I don't think that there's evidence that there was actually any fraud in the vote tallies um, of votes that were actually cast. Uh, on, on the other hand, we do, we do have um, some mechanisms. Uh, for throwing out the results of an election. Um, courts do regularly throw out the results of um, local elections um, and, uh, um, and the electoral college uh, itself, um, the electors don't actually have to cast uh, votes according to the instructions that they've been given by their states. And the House of Representatives doesn't have to um, accept the votes that come in from the electoral college uh, when they count the votes. Um, and we, we have had at least one episode in American history uh, in 1876, when uh, the, um, the the House didn't accept the votes uh, from Florida or Oregon, there were there were two different slates of electors who showed up. 
um, from each of those states claiming to be the electors that were duly appointed to the electoral college from those states, and uh, and the House didn't didn't accept those those votes. So so there are a few safeguards in the system. Um, you, the faithless electors in the electoral college is one that you hear of a little bit more. I think there were one or two of them this 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 past election, um, and uh, um, uh, it's been a while. But the House doesn't have to uh, recognize um, if the House is convinced that a particular uh, slate of electors from a state that's cast their vote at the electoral college um, is not legitimate. Um, they don't have to count those votes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so we have, we have those mechanisms, the electoral college itself. I mean, we, this was sort of implicit in the, the idea that, that Trey talked about earlier, the idea of having an electoral college as an intermediating force, in fact, itself was, was originally partly based on the idea, well, you, they're not going to elect somebody like a Donald Trump. It doesn't really matter, you know, who the voters want. Um, the, the kind of um, educated uh, aristocratic uh, um, uh, statesman who would be elected to the electoral college wouldn't wouldn't put in a, a clown like him, uh, even if the even if that's who the voters wanted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hope I hope that, uh, Jay, that we've kind of answered your question there. And if you have follow up, you know, feel free to hit us back up again on uh, Facebook dot com slash politics guys. But I hope that begins to kind oh. of answer your question on that. Actually, I'm sorry, Trey. Can I say one more thing of about course, one other of part? Of course, yeah. do. So, so the question: Why can't we get rid of it? Um, there are ways to get rid of it, um, short of a constitutional amendment, which would be very difficult. Um, the easiest way to get rid of it, and it might actually happen, uh, is that if just the 13 largest states in the country would each pass a state statute that says, in our state, we're going to give our electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. No matter who wins in our state's election, um, if the 13 largest states would do that, we would no longer have the Electoral College. So that's probably the simplest way to get rid of the Electoral College. That's very true. And it's a point that often goes uh, missed because it is still to this day left up to the states to determine the mechanism by which those electors will be chosen. Yeah, they don't have to give them to their they don't have to have their own uh, uh, elections on Election Day. Or even if they do, they don't have to give their electoral votes to the the candidate that wins their state's election. They could just choose instead to give it to the national popular vote winner. And and that would that would actually get around the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I hope that helps you, Jay. Our next listener, Andrew Jay, asks, what conditions will it take to see a third party rise to national prominence? Now, he doesn't say this, but I'm hoping that he's talking about the Libertarian Party. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> uh, but uh, given any of that, you know, he's really interested here. And should, why don't we see more third parties? And you know, what would have to happen for a third party to rise? So, uh, Andrew, to kind of start off things, keep in mind that we have not always had the same two political parties in the United States. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, John Aldrich has a really interesting book uh, called Why Parties, and he actually goes through the political party system. Now, so there's kind of two things to to be said to your question. One is, you know, yes, we've actually had other parties come to power, and they usually, as one comes into, uh, into power, another is leaving. So there could be kind of two things you're talking about here. One is, why don't we ever have a stable three-party system? And I think that's probably what you're asking. Because again, through time, we've had a multiplicity of parties. We've not always had Democrats and Republicans. Early on, we had Federalist and Jacksonian, excuse me, uh, Jeffersonian Democrats. Um, and, and, and that will move forward. So why don't we have a third party rise? Well, politically, uh, political science speaking, we actually have something called Duvier's Law. 
And what Duvier's law is, is it says that the number of parties in any political system is determined by the electoral mechanism of that system. So it, depending on how you vote will determine how many stable parties can exist at a single time in, an, in a particular political system. So in the United States, we have what is called single member districts. That means that one person can win per district uh, with a winner take all vote system. And that means the person with the most votes, whether or not it's the majority, will get that whole seat. So we have single member districts uh, with uh, first past the post, uh, or another way of saying that is majority. When you have those kinds of systems, that kind of system results in a two-party stable uh, uh, party system. And the reason for this is relatively easy to understand. We don't have to get too detailed. But the big reason for this is that if you're trying to say decide, so let's say you're me, for example, uh, and you have, you're, you, know, you have libertarian leanings, but you end up caucusing with the Republican Party uh, regularly. Now, I know that the libertarian candidate best case scenario in any place in the country, it's probably going to get about 10% of the vote. So if I'm really interested in, say, we were talking on the weekend show about tariffs, if I'm really interested in free trade, I may instead cast my vote, hi Hillary Clinton, uh, for the most free trader, right? Opting away from that third party because that will potentially net me more than voting for the party that I think will only net about 10%. So for third parties to emerge, you generally have to see systems of voting where you allocate seats in a legislature based on percentages. One way is called proportional representation, as opposed to the kind of system that we have. So that's why, in general, at least as a political scientist, we don't generally see third parties uh, rise to prominence. So Ken, anything you'd like to add about oh. that? Or why do you think, I think another part of his question yep. is, do you think a third party might maybe knock off one of the two major parties? And maybe you want to tackle that as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree so completely with your explanation. It was a perfect explanation. Um, and in American history, as you pointed out, um, at the national level, at least the emergence of third parties has typically been followed by the death of one of the prior two parties. So we're back to a two-party system. Um, I, I would say there's a few possibilities in the United States, in the United States models for how third parties could emerge. Uh, in, in New York, um, it's possible for third parties to endorse candidates that are um, not um, that are actually major party candidates. So you get um, in, in New York, they have a liberal party and a conservative party, as well as the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And um, and so often, the, but not always, the liberal and conservative parties will actually endorse the Democratic or Republican candidates. But then when you go in on election day to vote, you can actually pull the ballot on whichever line you want. So you could vote for a, a, a one named candidate either as a Democrat or as a liberal, the same person. And then that way, when there's a tally, you'll actually be able to see how many people voted for that person on the liberal line as opposed to the Democratic line or something. And so it enables these um, third parties to you know, build up um, uh, information about how many voters they've got, to sometimes withhold uh, their nominations um, from major party candidates um, who, who, whose platform they're not satisfied with. Um, and in terms of the state's campaign finance laws, they can get some money, um, uh, some matching funds based on how many votes they're getting. So that, that um, does a, a little bit, although that's still within the context that 
there's two major parties. Um, another thing which you mentioned, the single-member districts, that's a real interesting one. That's required now by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not required by the Constitution. So the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 says that we have to elect um, uh, members of Congress um, in single-member districts. Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's been the law for 50-some-odd you know, years. It, it could be changed, and it, it wouldn't be impossible for, um, if Congress would repeal that law uh, for some states to um, experiment uh, with proportional representation and at-large elections and things like that. Um, right here in Cincinnati, where we have that in local government, um, we actually have a viable third party. It's called the Charter Party. Um, and all of the candidates for Cincinnati City Council um, are elected on an at-large basis citywide. And so um, in that, in, and there's not districts within the city. And so um, on, on that kind of uh, uh, voting system, and again, you're quite right under uh, under Duvier's law, which name I, the name I didn't know before, but the law I certainly uh. understood. Yeah, you have to um, you have to have uh, um, that kind of voting system to have viable third parties. But localities could could experiment around with that um, uh, and and build up third parties locally. Also, I think in in uh, in a world where we've got um, basically the Democratic and the Republican parties entrenched as the major parties, any other party is going to be a third party, and other parties might even have success um, in in uh, straight up elections at the local level, right? So, in you know, you you could have uh, libertarians, as you suggested, uh, getting uh, elected sometimes to be mayors, city council members, things like that, um, where the 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 issues of campaign finance are. Um, less uh, uh, formidable um, than, than at national level elections. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely true. And, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. But, uh, you know, and I think the other part of, of your question, Andrew, is kind of this, I'll say wishful thinking that, you know, that maybe libertarians or a socialist party or somebody is going to bump off, you know, one of the two major parties. You know, you maybe you have looked at that history. And so if you have, keep in mind that it is very unique political variables and circumstances that result in a major party uh, creating a vacuum. So keep in mind, it's generally not a, a third party knocking off a major party that makes it come to prominence, but rather it's the crumbling of a party that creates a vacuum that allows a third party to become a major part of the major two-party system. And you know, you really have to go back to the civil war to see the last time right pre-civil war to see the last time that happened and so if your question in part is trying to say well are we on the verge of a party you know creating a vacuum and i I, can i think you're going to agree with me but you know please feel free to say i think the answer is a resounding no uh because take a look at the circumstances that were occurring you know in the pre-civil war era and even with you know the kinds of things you see happening you know post 2016 it is nothing like that. I, I don't see the Republican or the Democratic Party creating that vacuum yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you again. Um, and I, I guess you're referring to the Whig Party collapsing yes. and then the creating space for the Republican Party to form. Yeah, I think that's even less likely to happen now, no matter what happens in the parties. Um, you know, in some respects, you could. I would look at this as a time when uh, both parties are, um, in some ways, um, weakening compared to what they were before. Um, but still, the, the thing you have now that I think is different than before is you have these these major donors, this big money that is, um, you know, looking for vehicles to, to have influence. And if one of our parties would collapse, um, 
the the money that that is going into those parties is is just it's going to rehabilitate them even if they collapse because because the interest that uh, the the big money is trying to advance they need the vehicle to advance it and it's always going to be easier for them to rehabilitate an existing one either the Democrats or the Republicans than to start from scratch and and come up with a whole new party. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and we're not even to a point where I think that that kind of propping up would be necessary. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, you know? right, no, right, right, yeah. yeah. So, but, but you're right. Like, even if we happen to have that moment, that kind of wig moment, it would be, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ken, in saying that it would still be even more difficult today than it, than it was then. Yeah, you'd uh, have a takeover. You'd have a takeover of one of the existing parties rather than the death of one of the existing parties. Yes. Uh, now, we have a third question, and this is from Andrew C., and he asks about ranked choice voting. And this is a really timely question. As a matter of fact, it was one of the things I thought we might talk about, uh, but I put it here in our midweek show because it had to do with this. Uh, because this past week, Maine's Republican governor, uh, Paul LePage, actually threatened to not certify the results of a primary election because of a entirely new system of voting in Maine. And that entirely new system of voting is ranked choice voting. So listeners, just so you can be aware, ranked choice voting, also known as an instant runoff, is where voters can, but are not required, to rank every individual running for office. So if you had, say, you know, five people running for office, you instead of just voting for one person, you would vote for your number one pick and they'd be named number one. And then you'd put number two, your number two pick, your number three pick, your number four pick, and your number five pick. Now, if in the round one, meaning the first set of uh, ballot retaliations, any candidate gets 50 plus 1% of the vote, that everything stops and it looks just like a normal election. However, if none of the candidates looking at just the top picks doesn't receive 50% of the vote, then the least popular candidate is eliminated, and the people who named them number one, their number two votes then get tabulated. And that process keeps happening again and again and again until there are just two candidates left, and as a result, there is a winner who must, of course, at that point, have more than 50% of the vote. As you might imagine, this takes time and it's a unique, but that's ranked choice voting. And so basically, Andrew C. wants to know, is this a possibility? Can we see this happen more often? And if we have ranked choice voting, what kinds of outcomes might we expect? Uh, So Andrew, a couple of things to keep in mind, then I'll, I'll turn it over to Ken, is one, one of the main reasons that we see Maine have this system is that LePage, he got in in kind of really weird circumstance, and it really made voters angry. And they already had wanted to change their system. And so in some ways, this ranked choice voting is a very localized response. In other words, it's embrace is a localized response to Maine. That doesn't mean ranked choice voting is bad or wrong. It just means that its implication in Maine, implementation in Maine, probably doesn't indicate that the rest of the country is about to move uh, to a a ranked choice system. The other thing to keep in mind about its effects is I have not seen enough research to be able to confirm this, but early amounts of research suggest that many voters probably would not end up uh, rank choicing as much as you might imagine. And in part, that's because voters are usually voting in a low information circumstance anyway, meaning that you might get one or a two, 
beyond that, so if you have 15 people running for office, the likelihood that they're going to rank order all 15 of them is kind of low. So I don't know exactly what the implication is, but I would say that it's unlikely to see this be implemented in a widespread way outside of Maine, although it is a fascinating voting system. So what do you think about all this, Ken? Yeah, I agree with your prediction that it probably won't be um, uh, implemented uh, in very many places uh, because it's a little bit complicated and because there's some opposition to it. Uh, however, I do think it's good and right. I think it should be implemented everywhere. That's not to say that it will be. Uh, yeah, so that, seems, and that's what yeah, you always yeah. end up kind of point out. Yes, continue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, it's 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 the most democratic possible system. Um, if you like democracy, then you should like this form of voting um, because what it mainly does is it mainly provides a check against. Um, candidates who split votes on each other. Um, so if you have, uh, you know, to, to use like um, some examples from the recent California primary, uh, there you had districts that were very Democratic, and you might have had two Democratic candidates and one Republican candidate. And so, uh, or, and so when, when uh, or, two, or two Democratic candidates, maybe, f I think what they had in California, actually, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. They had like six Democratic candidates and yes. two Republican candidates. Yes. And so if you, have, if you have six Democratic candidates and two Republican candidates in a very Democratic district, what you could have is, even though it's a very Democratic district, all the Democrats split the vote on each other because there's too many of them, and the two Republicans get in, where between the two of them, they might only have 40% of the vote. And 60% of the voters wanted to vote Democratic. So if you have something like that, then um, I think it's it's not great for democracy. That, well, and, and you um, might want to yeah. explain for, for listeners, Ken, because I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in California, they actually have what's a, it's a top two primary system, which yeah. means basically that, you know, in many primaries, if you're in Ohio or you're in Florida, uh, right, you're going to have separate ballots for each parties, meaning so right. I'm going to have to either register in advance or in some way uh, for Democrat, Republican, and then the top choice for Democrat or for Republican becomes the candidate. What Ken is talking about in California, there are more places that do this. It's a, it's a top two system, meaning that all of your primary candidates are on a single ballot. So everybody who comes in to vote in the primary has a singular ballot. And then the top two vote getters, whether or not it's 50% uh, of the vote or not, as, as you're rightfully pointing out, Ken, those yeah. two then move on to the general election. So please continue. I, yeah, I just wasn't sure right. everybody would know what, what, you, what that was. Yeah, yeah. I th thank you for explaining that. Although also the, the principle I'm talking about would apply in general elections as well, I suppose. But, yes, um, yes, it would. Yeah, yeah. So there's a uh, um, yeah. So so I think if you if you want the um, if you want the different viewpoints to be represented in the uh, general in the general election, um, you know, or or if you if you want the you know the the in an area where there's just vote splitting or where there's people playing the role of spoiler, if you don't want that to have a huge impact on elections. Um, then, uh, then the 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 system uh, of uh, of ranked choice voting provides a good check against that. And I, I agree with you that one downside of it is is that it may be too complicated for a lot of uh, voters to actually use effectively. Um, and that's the argument against it, I suppose. But I think that I think that's really outweighed by the limited role that it could play because it, it's not going to matter in most elections. In most elections, somebody actually gets a majority of the vote. Exactly. So no matter, no matter what system of voting you're, you're using, it wouldn't matter. But in those, in those handful of elections where um, nobody gets a majority of the vote because there's, there's many candidates, um, I think ranked choice voting will do a better job than any other system of voting of, of, of ensuring that the candidate who, who wins the election is the one that best represents the, 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 the choices of the voters.
I think you're absolutely right. And I would also argue kind of to, to go back into our last question from our other Andrew is that, you know, on a local level, I don't think that the two major political parties are particularly fond of this because you could end up in a, in a situation now, not in a presidential election, probably, uh, but on a local level where if you had uh, a, a candidate who, you know, if nobody liked their particular candidate a whole lot uh, and they you had a lot of uh, secondary votes from both parties to a, a third party, <laughs> you know, yeah. you could end up with situations where uh, you could have this third party guy win. And I think that's another reason why it's not as li- So again, don't oh. hear, hear me right, Andrew. I'm not yeah. suggesting like, just like Ken is saying that this is a, this is a bad, as, as you were kind of pointing it out, right? There's the difference between, you know, what's possible and what's right. Um, but yeah. I think this is another reason why the two major political parties are hesitant about this, because even if it opens the door a little bit for those kinds of possibilities, why would they want to allow that, right? right. Uh, yeah, I agree with you there. Absolutely, you're right. And even to put a finer point on that, I think a lot more voters would, in fact, vote for third-party candidates if they could make their s- second choice be um, either the, the Democrat or the Republican. Right. So it would, it would encourage uh, uh, third-party voting, I think. Yes, for sure. Well, listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed us getting to some of your questions. I certainly enjoyed reading all of them. And, you know, if if you didn't get yours answered, we'd love to maybe talk with you more online. And I'm always trying to answer your guys' emails and your questions to us via Facebook and Twitter. As a matter of fact, I spend a lot of time on that. Um, but what we're going to finish off our Wednesday show with is something that we used to do on the weekend show. And that's when we're going to have our What We've Been Reading section. And so, Ken, I'm going to let you start start off on this. What have you been reading this week? What do you recommend for listeners to take a look to? Well, I, I'll tell you what I've been reading. I guess I'll leave it to listeners whether they're interested. But I, uh, <laughs> Always the case. Been, yeah. Yeah. I've been reading this book called A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald McLean. Uh, it's by an author named Roland Phillips. Um, I'm very interested in, uh, uh, I like to read nonfiction about espionage. Um, so I would only probably recommend this book for people who share that preference. Um, but Donald McLean was uh, a member of the, uh, the Cambridge five was probably the most successful, uh, espionage ring of the 20th century. Um, they were, um, uh, British, British, uh, five, five, uh, British aristocrats, who all rose to um, high high-ranking positions in the British government, um, including uh, as as British spies and diplomats, um, all of whom were working for the KGB the whole entire time. Uh, Donald McLean was was one of them. Um, he was a, a British diplomat who um, was actually Britain's. Um, uh, he worked in the in the uh, in in the British embassy in Washington D.C. He was a foreign uh, foreign affairs liaison to the American government. Um, he got uh, a lot of information. Um, um, about American and British intentions uh, towards the Soviet Union, um, which he passed all of it to the Soviet Union. And he uh, was about to be caught and defected there uh, in 1951, lived out the rest of his life uh, in, in Russia. Um, so I was just reading this, this new biography about him. All these events happened a long time ago. There have been a lot of biographies about Kim Philby, who was the most famous member of that ring. Uh, fewer biographies about McLean. But more, more and more materials become available now because all these old episodes that happened, you know, 75 years ago, 
Um, there, there's government, British government files that have been secret that get unsealed after a certain amount of time. Um, a lot of KGB files um, ended up becoming unsealed after the fall of the Soviet Union. So I enjoy reading a new, new, um, new, any new book about the Cambridge Five, and I have been enjoying this book, A Spy Named Orphan. Oh, fascinating. And, you know, I, I too am a, now not always the spy side, but I love a good biography, uh, as I'm sure listeners might have picked up on. Um, so this week, uh, Ken, my pick is actually, it's a book uh, called The Kennedy Brothers, The Rise and Fall of Jack and Bobby by Richard uh, Mahoney. And I am always a fan of interesting takes on presidential biographies. And this book has been particularly fascinating, and I actually picked it up because of the take on Jack, but I have actually found myself far more interested in it, and I find his portrayal of Bobby Kennedy to be really fascinating uh, and, and a unique picture of him. Now, I will warn uh, my uh, warn the readers, though, I find Rich uh, uh, Mahoney's, he, he delves pretty deeply into some of the characters involved in the plots to kill Castro, and I find some of that a little bit tedious. And so I've, a couple of times I found myself being like, okay, like skip a few pages. But on the whole, the portrait that he paints, uh, um, specifically of Bobby, but of, of Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, has been unique from other uh, portrayals of these two. And I found deeply enlightening about their personalities and their motivations and uh, their interaction while in the White House. And so uh, my recommendation this week, if you're interested in something, is the Kennedy brothers, the rise and fall of Jack and Bobby. All right. Yeah. So uh, listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed our new uh, midweek format politics guys i just before we go wanted to remind you again that mike's interview show is now politics plus and it is now available uh, his first interview again is going to be with an atlantic columnist and former george w speechwriter david Fromm. his upcoming interviews next week include a talk with neuroscientist uh tolly i really should have asked for a pronunciation on this last name uh, but we have a really famous neuroscientist that is coming up uh, <laughs> and uh, some books on political persuasion, a critique of modern feminism, a look inside the Obama and uh, Trump White House. So please subscribe to the show. You either search for Politics Plus, you actually spell out plus P-L-U-S in your podcast, podcast app of choice or head to politicsplus.us. That's dot U-S not com where you can both listen to the show and find subscription links um so that's it i thanks i hope you like what you heard listeners can head to politics.com slash support or head to politicsguys.com and click on support please subscribe share and rate this episode if you have questions please reach out at at uh, mail at politicsguys.com or facebook.com slash politicsguys or as always on twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll have a new show this weekend on Saturday. We hope you'll join us then.